Hello, everyone. This is your host, Manoj Tandon, and welcome to another episode of Dark Rhino Security, Security Confidential. Today, we are honored to have Eric Allard join us. Eric is a phenomenal talent in the world of cybersecurity, application security development. He is also an entrepreneur. He's currently the CTO of SUS, a software technology company. He has 15 plus years of experience in leadership, business strategy, and software team transformation with a very broad set of skills. On top of that, he is a software engineer, and more importantly to me, he's actually a degreed mechanical engineer, which I, I find some commonality in, which is which is awesome. But um, uh, welcome to the show, Eric. Thanks for being here. Appreciate uh, you joining us today. Thank you so much. Uh, I really appreciate it. And hopefully... You cannot hear the jets that are taking off <laughs> over no, my head. No, the noise cancellation is actually pretty good. It looks like that technology has come a long, long way. So let, let's uh, let's dive into this a little bit. You know, um, it, it was an interesting profile when we were researching you, some of the things that we came upon. So you know, your uh, foray into entrepreneurship, tell us a little bit about that. Like, How, how did you uh, get into that and what, what drove you there? Yeah, I, it wasn't on purpose. I think my like post high school career path was a little non traditional. Um, okay, I was in like a trades apprenticeship. Um, I uh, then I went to started college for mechanical engineering. Um, took a longer path to to get to graduation. Switched okay. to software at some point, and at the end of my senior year. Um, had made friends with another gentleman who was a great programmer and said, I don't really think I want to get a corporate job. What if we started a business? And um, we did. My first, mine and his first jobs out of college, we started a consultancy and we did that for six years, building websites, eventually early mobile applications. Wow. And we did a lot of uh, bank software. So it was not not how I planned it, but it's how I sort of got into software. Can I, banking is a old industry. Why banking? <laughs> it wasn't intentional. Again, it wasn't on purpose. Um, we were working with a company who did check processing software. Um, this was back in the early 2000s where there okay. was a new law requiring um them to not trade paper checks anymore. I think it was called check 21. Okay. So instead of banks like sending cargo planes full of checks every day across the country to say like, I owe you this much and you owe me this, they came up with some cash letter standard and we were um, helping a company because we knew more modern languages like .NET and they were all COBOL and mainframe folks. So we yes. were helping them, they called it server, server applications. We help them um, work on some of those integrations. Fantastic. Uh, were they fairly open and receptive, that market? Um, I think, I mean, I have to assume, and my fingers are very crossed under down here, <laughs> but that things are more stringent today. I mean, it just was a little more of a wild west. Um, I can't imagine hiring some young 20 somethings with no background checks to come do. I just don't think no one would do it now, but it was an opportunity that we were fortunate enough to have. And 
um, that's what got us started. Yeah. And, uh, that, you know, I went on to other businesses, but I've always kind of stayed in software careers other than my stint as a stay at home dad, which was kind of a more recent career thing. Well, let's, let's chat about that. I mean, you've actually put that publicly on your LinkedIn profile, which, um, I think it's a very good thing. Uh, it, it says a lot when someone's willing to do that, but why is that important to you? Um, there's a number of reasons. Selfishly, I think it was, it helped me figure out like more about what I may be good at and what I'm not. That's a very hard job. Um, if you're ever going to manage people and parents, unfortunately, I don't think you can fully understand what being a parent entails without being a parent. So I, by being the one who stayed with the kids, uh, just there's a lot to it. And sometimes there's not a lot to it. And that can also be very challenging. Just dealing with what should I be doing with my time? How am I doing the right thing for my kids? And like, sometimes I'm bored or <laughs> what's happening and like, what will happen to my career when I go back? But as a manager of people, I certainly have thought a lot about how, when I, uh, in my prior jobs, manage people with kids and how I see things very differently now. So it's a tough job. It's, it's a job like anything else. Don't get me wrong. And it's, I mean, it's not easy. <laughs> so let's, let's uh, switch to that. Let's switch back to that for a second. So from entrepreneurship, you went into the corporate world. Was there a reason that you went there? Did you sell your company or how, how what happened uh, that? Yeah. Um, it was right during the kind of still, there was some, it was 2011. We had weathered the kind of 2008, 2009 recession, but okay. it was hard, you know, in, in any sort of a consultative business, you're spending a lot of time like lining up, making sure you have a pipeline yep. and there was other personal stuff going on in my life. Um, and it just, someone was recruiting me to come work for a, another local business that we had done some consulting for. And that became my first real corporate software job with, you know, there was a substantial staff and I kind of stepped away from being a software engineer and became a manager. And that was a whole nother big deal experience for me. I, um, doing the, the business, it was one other person and me in a, a nice office, but that was it for six and a half years. And it was him and I and the phone. And socially, I don't know that I even recognized how much that hampered me until I started this new job. And it was like the world changed. Everything changed color like Dorothy and the Wizard of Oz. It was just like, wow. But do you miss the freedom? No, I think the freedom thing is kind of a false narrative because there's always a boss that's either your customer or your your own drive to accomplish something um no i i think as i'm i'm not old but you know i'm in my my 40s i think like freedom is what you make it like I, i'm fortunate enough that i feel like maybe i'll have to do something else someday but 
having your own business certainly isn't necessarily freedom either. There's a lot of responsibilities and considerations. And Absolutely. Yeah. And that's, uh, you're probably the first one to make the comment on the show, uh, but it's a hundred percent true. There's always a boss. Everybody, <laughs> everybody has a boss. There's, it's just the reality of what it is. It doesn't, you know, even if you're the president of the United States, you have a boss. There's yeah. People, you know, there's, <laughs> there's something, a boss. Something's helping to shape those decisions substantially more than just what you want. I think that's the key thing to remember. <laughs> that very much so, very much so. And, you know, you talk, you've brought up managing people um, a couple times. And, and I think I was reading on your profile or some or an article that you had posted that when you're actually interviewing someone, you don't like to be dismissive of them. You always want to give them real feedback. Mm -hmm. and, and I thought that was interesting. Um, and since we, you brought up the management, I, I thought I'd ask, what, why, uh, why do you think that's so important rather than just saying thanks, but no thanks? Um, because I think everyone... Not everyone. There's no everyone's. There's no everything. But most people are want to do better. And um, I also think in some of those early discussions, you know, you can you can really just base it on a you don't have a history with the person. You know, they didn't yeah. do something that made you mad one day. You're not carrying any baggage. It's just right. hey, based on everything I've been able to learn through the credentials and the resume you provided in this discussion, or maybe the few prior, here's what I think would work best for you, even if it's not here. Um, and, you know, managing people is hard. Um, if you really want to do the best job you can, uh, that's, I mean, that's the hardest thing I've had to do in my uh, career since being a software engineer is learning how to work with people, coach people. Um, you know, I, I've done plenty of things wrong. <laughs> and especially when you manage a lot of people, I think what you maybe don't notice at first is so many things are proxied through others. You can't have direct experience of everything that everybody on your team is doing firsthand. And it just gets the fog of business, the fog of everyday tasks. And um, there's not a lot of hearsay in an interview. You just, you, you've talked, it was, you kind of did what you needed to do. And, and if it's not a good fit, hopefully you can tell them right there. And if not soon, soon after <laughs> with a, with a follow-up. That's, do you, uh, just before we get to software application security, here's a second, but do you welcome the candidate? And I'm asking this for the benefit of our listeners, because some of them are out there searching for jobs right now and making career transitions into cybersecurity. Do you welcome a lot of questions from them? Mm -hmm. Yes. Even though they may guide you to opinions that are very different from your own, if you will. Yeah, you learn a lot about people that way. I still remember um, opinions I gave in some of my early interviews and just 
maybe how poorly delivered or I just wasn't very tactful, you know, when I was 20 years old and, and that's okay. But questions are a way to show like your creative, your take on something that maybe they just wouldn't expect. And it doesn't have to always be about the job. It, I, I mean, I like to know like whatever people want to talk about. I think that can really drive a discussion and give you a sense of um, how they interact, how they handle a difficult situation. And, you know, I'm like anyone else. If people reach out to me cold on LinkedIn and you get inundated with stuff, but it's, it is really worth it. You get people's attention. Um, one of the people that I remember clearly, this person reached out to the president and sent a resume and he sent it to me and I was like, all right, I'll, I'll talk to this guy. And it was, it was a great fit. The person was, had a personality and the, the attitude and, you know, so take a chance for sure. Take a, send it out there and see what you get. There you go. Uh, that's, that's great advice. So let, let's switch gears a little bit and talk about Seuss, which is the company you're with right now. So what is Seuss all about and what are they trying to accomplish in the market? Yeah. Uh, Seuss was founded a couple of years ago by uh, a pretty senior engineering mind who I had worked to, worked with at a prior business. And it is made up of a number of people from this prior business. We used to do retail grocery software. Um, Interesting. Yeah, there's a lot of cool stuff and more parallels than you would think. Uh, at the end of the day, there's sort of like niche security specific things and problems you need to solve. But at the end of the day, you're putting together uh, what I would call an enterprise application, meaning there are certain capabilities that are going to be expected that it has if you're going to sell something commercially. And all of that is problems that you've solved, whether you're making retail grocery platform software or cybersecurity software. So okay. um, Seuss makes specifically uh, a proprietary SCA tool, which is software composition analysis. I'll explain what that is in a minute. Um, okay. A DAS tool, which is like penetration testers might use, and the glue that connects a lot of those things. But the the differentiator is we are trying to create a product that is purpose built for small and medium sized businesses, and that's okay. affordable. Um, it's just it's a new take on something that's existed for a while that a lot of people haven't started doing yet, and. We're trying to, we say, democratize software security. We're trying to make this solution accessible to the tens and hundreds of thousands of companies that may build some software but don't exactly know what's in it. And uh, that's that's our goal is to try to get that capability much more broadly available. So does SUS stand? Is it an acronym for something? It's not. It's, I mean, maybe it could be a backronym. Um, if we were really creating an open source product itself, you know, so open source or something like that. Oh, yeah. No, um, it's not like the most amazing origin name story. It's, I believe, some Spartan 
maybe semi-mythological figure that was like a protector figure. So Okay. Yeah. So accessibility is your avenue of democratizing software, right? So you want small, medium businesses, and there's a lot of them that are developing very niche applications out there, right? But there is, you know, you hear that term uh, MVP thrown a lot around a lot in the industry, the minimal viable product. And um, I've heard it a lot from even in, uh, from investors that they want their companies to get to that MVP and get it to market. Is there not an inherent conflict, an obvious conflict between building for security, testing for security, designing for it up front versus achieving the MVP? Mm-hmm. How do you, um, wh- what's your advice or how do you resolve that? Yeah. I mean, I think, let's be honest, I think there is, but there's a lot of things where I would say, so what? You still have to do it. If I was, we have a local company named Beta Technologies. Okay. Um, They're really interesting. They make electric um, planes and they can vertically take off and they're working with UPS and the military and all kinds of people. Um, And they have lots of interesting technology with charging and flying an electric plane. Super cool, right? Interesting. I, yeah. I, I am not particularly close to their business, but if I said to you, Manoj, um, beta is really cool. Isn't there an inherent conflict in making this thing not crash and making it quickly? And you would say, yeah, but I have to make it not crash. Like I have to make it safe enough that this will safely carry our pilots and someday whatever cargo is in it. So yes. There is some of a conflict there, but I don't think you, that doesn't mean you can't do it. And if it were painless and inexpensive, I don't think people would resist. Just like um, test-driven development or even a couple of decades ago, small projects, people might say like, well, why am I going to use source control? That's expensive. There's only four of us. It's a bunch of overhead. No one would even consider, I mean, GitHub is free or cheap. Uh, You know, a lot of these things have just become de facto in the case of like TDD, for example, like maybe not universally accepted, but people understand there's certainly a lot of benefits for that. Um, People are going to use a source control solution. I think a lot of these fundamental security capabilities will be commoditized and they will become a frictionless experience so that Someday you wouldn't even consider talking about a development cycle, small, medium, or large that didn't include it. Do you have any metrics or anecdotal evidence on how much time does it add to a timeline in the development cycle when you are considering AppSec as part of this process? (laughs) I don't have any anything empirical. Um, sort of a sidebar. I was quizzing Chat GPT yesterday, and then fact checking some of its things. And okay. at first, I was like, "See, this is why this will never work because there's I can't find any evidence of that." And then, as I dug in for like an hour, I was like, "Oh, no kidding! They're actually this is pretty close to being true." Anyway, 
Um, I don't, I can't throw out a, a great statistic, but I will say, um, like any, first of all, if we're, if we bring it back to you're really small, okay, great. You're starting small. You can do this in a stepwise motion. If you're a company that already has thousands of employees and thousands of projects and you want to start an AppSec program, yeah, you're going to have to do it in a crawl, walk, run manner. You're going to have to pick a couple newer uh, projects that you think are in good shape and start with those, learn the ins and outs, understand your team's process of how you're going to triage issues, determine something needs to be addressed or not. If you're a little team or one person, it's actually a small lift because there's you're starting with nothing, right? And, right. and if you're doing it from the very beginning, you're going to keep up with it as you, as you go, as you go along, as long as there's a solution that is simple, easy to set up and that you could actually buy. There's some free and open source ones as well. They just may require more of your time and energy to get going with. So that's the trade-off. Sure. I, I mean, we, you know, again, just, uh, you know, attending some of the local tech council events or, uh, you know, some of the, the technical events with startups that happen here in our region, we see a lot of small software companies that are, and, and they're developing very specialized pieces, whether it's components that go into medical devices or it's component pieces that are going into a, a, a specific robotic application. You know, it, it's a really niche things. And these development teams aren't super large, you know, they're like 10 people, five people, seven people, somewhere in that, in that neighborhood. What's, and this is purely anecdotal on my part. So take this with a gigantic grain of salt. Uh, and if somebody fact checks it, please put it in the comments, let us know what the real numbers are. But generally speaking, we have not seen the security for those niche at niche applications be at the forefront of those teams mind. And I guess what I'm trying to say is I don't know that those teams are beginning with security as a critical component in mind. Mhm. Is I I don't you're I don't disagree with you based on what we've seen from the market. Right. And from what we've seen from our early customers, I guess there's like, here's where I think we will be. Let's pick a time in the future, 10 years. Okay. When, when it may not be front of mind, it may just be accepted, like the de facto standard. And if you want to talk about at this very moment, I think I would roughly divide things into two categories. <laughs> Maybe only one, but I'll, the biggest category is someone is compelled to do this for a compliance effort um, because of a merger and acquisition. Those are things where like, you need to have an assessment of the software you're using, known vulnerabilities. What are the licenses you're relying on in your software? Um, or you are a technology, a young technology company that understands the value and that it there is some substantial um, insurance you can get by not having to worry about some of this right out of the gate. But mostly businesses that are doing this, 
it's because they get to a point where they recognize someone's telling them to do it, either their boss or someone that wants to buy them. If you go back to who's the boss is, there's always a boss somehow and you're being compelled to do it. But that's, I think right now, I, I don't I, think it's going to be like that for much longer. Uh, well, you know what, Eric, I really appreciate your candor on that. Let's talk about those tools. You know, what are so some of these software supply chain tools? What work, what ones yeah. work and what don't? What, yeah. what, what's in that? There's a lot of stuff. And I don't want to say like any of it works or doesn't work. You know, Sherlock Holmes looked at a lot of clues before he found out who did it. And he had a lot of help from, from Watson. Um, I guess let's break out a few of the big categories. There's okay. Um, so we do SEA and DAST. I like to say SEA is like the nutrition label. Okay. okay. Here's what's in it. Um, or if you're thinking about a recipe, here's the ingredients list. And then something like SAST, static uh, analysis, would look at your code, right? So you could have an ingredients list. You wouldn't necessarily be able to make the recipe, though. You couldn't make the cake just because you knew it had this much flour and sugar. You would need some instructions. Right. So that SAST would help you look at those instructions or your code. Um, there's binary analysis tools. That's like the cake came out of the oven and someone comes through and looks at it with a microscope and says, well, based on the molecular structure, I think this was flour and butter and water or something. So okay. there's, there's um, sort of binary analysis tools. There's runtime agents, um, which are kind of watching the, the byte level flows on a particular machine, looking for something that it thinks, oh, um, based on the way this thing's accessing memory or, or how it's trying to allocate resources or um, where it's trying to exit, <laughs> where it's trying to get out of this machine and get out onto your network. There's those types of agents. Um, and that's all just, I think, the software runtime and software supply chain aspects that's not even considering things like different endpoint detections and tools you could be running um, at a more like network hardware level. So we're, you kind of, you want to do the best you can with what you can put into place. And I think it's going to be de depend on what kind of business you are, um, what your industry is, what you're creating, what your technology is, that's going to help decide what you're going to do. If you don't make software, some of those things don't apply. Um, but you still may need some of these tools because you're an IoT vendor and certainly it's sure. going to be communicating on. I, I, actually, I, I'm going to contradict myself. You still want to do that as much as you can, right? You, you, you just may not be the one creating that software bill of materials for whatever, whatever in that device you created. You're going to rely on your vendors to provide that to you. And you may find that they can't do it yet. You know, that's it. Um, I often hear people talking about the outputs and the action items out of software tools saying, well, let's take SBOM. Are you familiar with? I'm not that personally familiar that's, with it, but I know what it is. Yeah. It's, it's the software world's version of like the bill of, the bill of lading, right. the bill of materials that might come with a shipping container. Like here's all the stuff that's in this in, box. In this thing. Okay. Yeah. Um, 
Well, there's been a lot of talk and activity over the last, say, year about more regulation requiring the software, the software bill of materials. Okay. If, say, you're going to provide um, software to a government entity, okay. um, some big industry players are kind of pushing back probably because it'd be a lot of work for them to create these documents. And one of the narratives is, Hey, this, uh, we don't really know this is the right way to solve the problem. We don't really know that this is the right format. We haven't figured out all the details. That's fine. I don't know that it's the, the answer though, to stop trying to figure out what you've got, right? Like you need, it's, it's the journey, not the destination. Like you doing the audit, having an understanding of what's in your software or hardware is, is really the thing that's going to take discipline and, uh, a, and a specific approach as you make things, whatever format you share that information with is kind of secondary, not really that big of a deal in my opinion. But Eric would clients, even if they're government clients and, and, really have the technical wherewithal to understand that SBOM and really may even make a judgment call on it, right? Because a lot of it also is going to get back to just not what's in there, but the architecture of how those in components interplay with each other. Yeah. And there's aspects of SBOM where, for instance, you can, it's, I think the VEX is the commonly trotted out one that we may that may become used more prominently, you may have to attest like, yeah, my software has that, but we never call this routine. It's not actually a vulnerability in our software. Um, I think whether or not you have the expertise to make a decision, you still need to know. Like if you're a diabetic and you don't know a lot, you've just been diagnosed and you don't know a lot about what that means for you from a diet perspective. Your doctor is going to give you materials and and teach you some things, and then you, then you're going to become more of an expert. Like these are things I care about in the food right. that I eat and how it impacts me. Um, I I don't know. I think the reality is people are going to have to become more educated and and have a better understanding of what does matter to their their business and what is in either the software they're making or the software they're receiving. So you, let's, let's go down that. This is a big rabbit hole. So it, it is. I mean, I, I mean, I don't, <laughs> I, if we, if we let's peek into that rabbit hole, maybe we don't, let's not go all the way down because we'll <laughs> never come back out of it in time. But if, if we peek inside and we look at, you know, the way software development in a large part is done today is that you are using a lot of open source off the shelf components. Even if you're, for example, there's so much software developed on Java, right? Mm -hmm. Which is now an Oracle product and uh, it's ubiquitous. It's out there all over the place. You don't know what vulnerabilities, security vulnerabilities reside in that. Right. And, and there was a, there's been a couple significant ones that have come up mm -hmm. zero yeah. days that nobody really knew about. How do you when you are doing a development process on uh, software, how do you really mitigate for that? How can you even mitigate for that? Um, 
what's the best that can be done? Because I don't think we're going to go back to a world where everyone's developing all the libraries from scratch and they're not going to use what's available to get into rapid software development, right? Yeah. Um, well, I mean, I guess step one, having an inventory of what you have is helpful, right? Then when there is a new announcement that something is vulnerable, you don't have to scramble to understand if you're, if you're affected or if you're even using it. And then you can look at your inventory and say, oh, geez, we are, or, or we're not, but transitively through something outside dependent on its dependencies, it's using it. Okay. Now you know that you've got to dig a little deeper. Um, from there, you may have to upgrade or not to remediate a vulnerability and it, it's going to take some decisions that play into maybe more of a classic software engineering problem. How did you build this thing? How are you depending on these third party things? Is it hardwired in? Do you have abstraction layers? Can you rip and replace this? Can you not? Are you at the whims of whoever created this dependency for them to fix it and patch it? Um, I think, just because you're not writing it doesn't mean you're kind of absolved from how responsibly you use something. So I always think of what kind of a, an approach did you use to um, incorporate this into your bigger enterprise application? That's just, just responsible software engineering practices, right? So, right. But, and you could you could be very responsible as an organization and, and follow good practices, but you still can't ultimately guarantee that everything is vulnerability no. free. No, you can't. And, and and they're just you may be stuck for a while. Uh, you may have to disable a capability in your application. You may have to put in other mitigating things like firewall rules. I don't think that's that doesn't always work, or it's not sustainable, or you could make all kinds of other problems doing that stuff. So sure. <laughs> there's no one answer. You definitely need to know though. You definitely need to know so that you can try your best to MacGyver. <laughs> you know, there's always <laughs> going to be times, there's always going to be times in any trade, whether you're building it with software or, you know, you're welding steel or whatever, you're going to need to take some sticks and duct tape and, you know, and temporarily work around something. But um, a lot of the, a lot of the instances, it just comes down to awareness is step one, because you can't react to what you can't even measure is there. And I it's, it's a varied, like, I don't know, analogy wise, it's, it's, it's just like looking at building a house and all of the things that you could find when you redo a hundred year old house. Like it's endless possibilities. And there are some things you could look at as an inspector to have some hints and, you know, what's the water table like here? Is this neighborhood wet? And um, like, do we have, you know, do we have carpenter ants? And there's things you can look for, but there's stuff you're going to be surprised by. And you just have to have, um, and and you know what what you just said that awareness I, that that's interesting to me i that's a good reason to have an uh, s bomb mm -hmm. you know cuz it does 
potentially daylight some things and bring brings things to the forethought that may not necessarily have been there. Yeah. But do you think, what's the role of compliance in that? Do you think oh, compliance well. frameworks actually make a difference? And I'm just going to, yeah, I said it. I, you know, and, and I'm saying it from the point of cybersecurity because we've seen it. You can check all the boxes and still not have good cybersecurity. It's. It, yeah, I think you can. I think, but I think at least my personal journey through some of those things is if you're trying to do the right thing and you're making a good faith effort during those processes, you're going to consider, you're going to uncover, you're going to pull off that piece of sheetrock and be like, all right, that's bad. Like we do need to do better with this area. Okay. Um, so the compliance efforts, they're going to have very prescriptive controls in some cases, right. you know, PCI, SOC 2, whatever, right. section 6.5, you must remediate all critical and high vulnerabilities within N days. Um, that's, I think, why a lot of people go look to do it. But I think, again, it's the journey, not the destination. Like, I promise no one's no one is really doing 100% of every single control in some of these big... Oh, absolutely not. However, I also know, well, I don't know, but through my own experience, when you really go and look at what it's asking and you think about what it's trying to accomplish, you're, you're going to do things better than you were. You're going to do things, it's, you're going to make improvements. You're going to make stepwise changes. You're going to put things in place so that next year this is simpler or you are more prepared for the, um, I, I, I believe that at least for, um, most people, it is, it gives you a path. It gives you some, it gives you some formal guideposts to try to keep you on the rails, but it's not a guarantee of, of good software. I mean, like any other 10 step plan you've ever seen, you could follow everything. It doesn't guarantee that you're going to, be successful. I, I, I think you said something there that, you know, if your efforts are in good faith, you know, mm -hmm. that then yes, I think those frameworks can make a lot of difference because you are inherently trying to do the best you can. Right. But it always, it also just brought to my mind, the scenes from the original, the very first Jurassic Park. I don't know if you've seen it, where oh, yeah. you know, that, that guy sh uh, shuts down the fences, right? And, and he has to reboot the whole thing. There was It wasn't designed to do it section by section. It was like, we got to do the whole thing. And it was just a mad rush to get it. It sounded like they, those guys were uh, just trying to get the, the damn thing to, to happen and get people to buy tickets. Mm-hmm. <laughs> And, and and how it worked was an afterthought. Uh, so if if you're the MVP crowd, if you're purely in the MVP crowd, um, you might be more in that circumstance than the good faith crowd. That's yeah. But see again, in the MVP crowd, you know we're not a huge company. When you look at a lot of these controls, the scope of it is much different. If you're if you're really in the MVP world. Let's say you have five people. Yeah. It's very different. Trust can count for a lot, and there's not as many things to keep an eye on. Communication's easier. 
you know, it's a very different ball game than in a 50 person sure. business. So, um, I think there's still something there, but you're going to have a much more scrappy grassroots approach to a lot of the things than if you were a bigger company. And if you have to be say SOC 2 compliant and you're an MVP product, that's kind of a tough position to be in. That was very politely said. Yeah, but, um, you can do it. And I, and I do think there's a lot of services now that actually substantially ease that burden. You know, it's, you can be um, provided with enough people with experience to say, look, for your business and how small you are, this is what you can be thinking about and how you can accomplish this. Um, yeah, I'm not a compliance expert. I do know from my, our business's space, um, that is an, a reason people come looking for tools like ours. Give us a, you know, give, give us a couple of use cases for Seuss. You know, you just mentioned, you know, what, why do people come look? Give us some uh, yeah. guidance here for our listeners. I mean, the original reason this tool was built, our founder was going through M&A and trying to use some of the legacy stuff on the market. This was about 10 years ago now, maybe seven years ago. Um, very cumbersome. So that was his inspiration to make a tool. Someday I'm going to make something that does this better and it shouldn't be so complicated or expensive. Okay. And the software world has changed a lot since then too. Things like package managers, more modern languages have a lot of advantages for how to find and, and learn about your dependencies. Um, okay. So license understanding from a legal perspective, what open source software are you using? Um, if you want to get acquired, Someone's going to ask. It's going to come up. That's a reason. The vulnerability um, aspect is sort of a natural extension of that. If you know all of the things that you're using, there's a lot of data out there, open and otherwise, that you can comb to figure out. Well, obviously, this isn't all of the vulnerabilities with my software because we don't know all of them, right? There's right. lots of undisclosed. But of what we know, how many of those things apply to this bundle of stuff, this this Betty Crocker cake mix. If I go look at that um, ingredients list, how many of these do I need to maybe worry about or look into more to see if I'm relying on it? If I'm not using the optional sprinkle pack, then I'm not vulnerable. You know, if that right. you're going to have to make some judgment calls. Um, I'm what was the? I'm already. <laughs> I started to ramble past maybe your initial question, though. You no, but, but, uh, about, some, about use some more use cases. On use cases, yes. So vulnerability finding, but also remediation. The tool will tell you, here's newer versions that don't have vulnerabilities. Um, and it integrates with issue managers and so forth. Um, and then the kind of the last step, like what is the output of this process? Well, you do this stuff continuously on every commit, for example. You, you integrate it into your build cycle. It's very simple. When somebody or you needs to know, what did we ever have that? I'm going to go back a month and look. Oh, geez, were we using that thing? And then we yanked it out, but we temporarily had this. If you're a little company, you're not probably going to audit that. But the point is you have a record of you have an S-bomb. You have every cake you ever baked. You've got, you can go back and look at for this, for this build, here's the ingredients list. And um, again, going back to the journey, not the destination, 
if the destination is someday you're going to have to give someone an S bomb because they're going to want to know what's in your stuff. If you've already taken the journey and set up some tooling in, in your build process, you're going to have learned a lot more about um, how easy it is it to update these dependencies or potentially remove them. How frequently are the maintainers contributing to these um, packages and updating them. There's a lot of just kind of good developer hygiene that comes along with this stuff. Like, oh, geez, we're quite a few versions out of date. Um, that will all be apparent to you as well in these in these tools. I, I And if you're comfortable sharing it, uh, you know, from a cost perspective, how big is the bread box like it, for a small business to, to get engaged with Seuss? Oh gosh, um, it's very inexpensive. It's $199 a month if you want both of our tools, um, DAST and SCA. It's $598 a month. We have a community edition. So if you're an open source project, you don't have to pay anything. Um, we have, we'll really? give you the full license, but we have a no friction sign up. So um, some other folks will give you a free license for open source, but you have to fill out forms and get approved. We um, just make you have a public GitHub repository and that's it. We'll ask you to put a little badge on your readme and you can use it for free. And we're going to add, um, Bitbucket and, um, GitLab support as well. So wow. right now it's GitHub and soon you can, any of those, uh, any of those SCMs, you could use our stuff for no cost. If you want to point your public repos, point it to your public repos. So, and we'll make you an S bomb and all that stuff. Well, I think that's motivation for people listening. If I mean, yeah, free. I mean, how do you get how, the price is right? I mean, how, <laughs> yeah, we want to, we want people to know that this is a thing. We want to get the word out. And if you want to use it for your business, it's extremely affordable, you know? Um, so yeah, that's, that's where we, that's where we come in. And Eric, you know, in the, in the last minute here, I know we're, we're at the hour. I just wanted to uh, also, do you have, are you guys doing any events? Are you uh, guys got any publications? Anything that you want to talk about to inform yeah. our listeners about that? Yeah, might be of relevance? community editions. The big thing we're going to be at Developer Week out in Oakland in mid February. Okay, Valentine's Day. I'll be talking there. Um, we'll throw out some passes for that. Those are kind of the big upcoming things. That's fantastic. And if people want to get a hold of you, what's the best way to do it? Soos.io. S-O-O-S dot I-O. Just come to our website. It's very straightforward. Fantastic. Well, Eric, thank you so much for being a guest here. We look forward to having you back at some point. You know, don't be a stranger as things develop. Uh, you're more than welcome to come back and, and tell us a little bit more. We've only scratched the surface on this topic. Yeah, I, I will say I've done a few of these and you are a number one interviewer. You're, it was great, great, very well done and happy to be on. But Well, the, the honor is all ours. Uh, thank you. Thank you so much. <laughs>